Welcome to the Archive Project. I'm Amanda Bullock, and for Andrew Proctor, I'm Director of Public Programs at Literary Arts. The Archive Project is a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers for more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland, Oregon. This is one of four special episodes that are being broadcast exclusively on the Archive Project podcast as part of the 2021 Portland Book Festival. This year's festival will also feature live streamed conversations every night the week of November 8th. If you miss anything, replays are available, and we are returning to the Portland Art Museum and the stages at Portland 5 for an in-person festival day on November 13th. To learn more about attending the festival in person or virtually, visit literary-arts.org. And keep an ear out for conversations from this year's festival events on future episodes of the Archive Project. This 2021 Portland Book Festival Special Archive Project episode is particularly delightful to me because it's built on the friendships that grew out of a past festival event. Four writers who came together for a panel discussion at the 2017 Book Festival reunited via Zoom to continue and expand their conversation. Marissa Siegel, publisher of The Rumpus, invited poet Kava Akbar, essayist Melissa Phoebos, and memoirist and fiction writer Megan Steelstra to reunite. All four writers have new projects out this year, and they talked about the things that have changed and the things that, often frustratingly, have not changed in the past five years, both in terms of their own work and in terms of the world. They talk about the bodily, embodied experience of writing and reading. They talk about what it's been like to teach during the pandemic and to hold that space for fellow writers. They talk about how rage and hope can come from the same place. It feels like we're listening in on a group of very intelligent and generous friends talking around the table, maybe after they've shared a meal. It's a privilege to spend some time reuniting with Melissa, Kava, Megan, and Marissa. I'm so excited to be here with you uh, three this morning uh, and to reprise our chat from five years ago. So back in 2017, we gathered for the Portland Book Festival uh, for a conversation called Questions, Interrogations, and Confessions, Making Life into Art. That panel was described as follows. How do we create art from our own wounds and wonders? I was joined by Kava Akbar, who then had published Calling Wolf a Wolf, Melissa Phoebos, who had just published Abandon Me, and Megan Steelstra, who had just published The Wrong Way to Save Your Life, to discuss life and art and how we turn our lives into art. And now it is five years later, and I am here with Kava, Megan, and Melissa again uh, to talk a little bit more about trauma and writing and what's changed since 2017 and what hasn't changed. And all three of these wonderful, brilliant minds have new work out in the world. Uh, Melissa has published in the last year, her essay collection, Girlhood, it's out from Bloomsbury. Kava released over the summer, Pilgrim Bell from Grey Wolf. And Megan has two re-released books out from Northwestern University Press. The essay collection, Once I Was Cool, and the story collection, Everyone Remain Calm. So let's start there. Let's start with the books that you've put out this year. Uh, instead of, and then we'll go back to the past. What feels different in 2021? And maybe we'll also just talk a little about what, like, what in the world is different in 2021 than 2017. What has it been like to have books come out during a pandemic 
So last time I asked you, what is it like to have books come out during the election of Donald Trump? This time it's, what is it like to have books come out in a pandemic? Um, you know, what, what's changed for you about that process and what hasn't? And maybe, Melissa, do you want to start us off? Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, and first of all, thank you so much for orchestrating this reunion, Marissa. Um, I uh, My chin dropped when you said five years, because that feels like two years ago, max. Um, yeah, sort of my temporal experience and understanding um, no longer exists. <laughs> um, I will say that things feel really different. You know, publishing this book feels really different from Abandon Me. So, um, you know, I, I, I feel fortunate and maybe Megan and Kava, you can speak to this too, that, that I published my book sort of pretty deep into the fissure of the pandemic. So the industry had sort of figured out to some extent how to do things and what worked and we'd all become really proficient at zoom. Um, and so, uh, things that I think would have felt catastrophic, uh, a year or, or a year and a half previous, um, went fairly smoothly. Um, and I also think that for me, you know, this is my third book. Um, and if it had been my first, I would have been totally heartbroken to not go on a book tour and hug everybody. And as it was, I had just moved across the country um, to Iowa after 20 years in New York. And I was um, sort of emotionally and physically annihilated. <laughs> and so broadcasting from like my bedroom for my book tour was like kind of perfect. Um, I was also having like really intense back problems. So I wouldn't have been able to even travel. So um, that's a really grim, like happy story, <laughs> you know? Um, but I will say that I had incredibly low expectations for every part of it, for sort of how the book would like quote unquote perform in the world. Like if people would buy a feminist book about adolescent girlhood in the middle of a global pandemic. Um, and also, you know, about the potential of like connecting with other people, which is the best part of publishing a book is like coming out of the cave and connecting with other people. And I was incredibly happily surprised by my ability to do that. And, and part of that is because we got so used to Zoom. Um, and part of it was because we were all starving for connection. And so like those little hour long portals where I sort of dove into a virtual space with a friend that I love and had a brief intimate conversation with a bunch of strangers typing questions um, were actually I cried at like at least half of my book tour events. Um, and it felt like really special and intimate in many ways. So yeah, maybe I'll stop there for now. Uh, Megan, can you tell us a little bit about, so, and you've re-released collections that have been released into the world before, but now they're coming out into a whole, whole different yeah. world, different time in your life. What, what's that been like? Yeah. Well, I, I was thinking when, when Melissa said it, just like the weird time warp we're all involved in right now and how 2017 just feels like maybe two years ago. I, I don't, I kind of feel like it was 900 years ago. I, I, but like, I, I feel like I'm 80 years old. I feel like I'm, I'm 16 again. I, 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 feel like I, I don't, I think Yoko Ono has some tweet about like how time is a man-made construct. It, it doesn't exist at all. And, and like, I'm, 
I'm there with, with Yoko on, on that one for sure. Just like the, the way time is moving in my head. And I know that the process of putting these two books out into the world right now plays a part in that because there, I had to spend the entire, the entirety of the pandemic re-editing books that my mid 20 something self wrote about living at that time. Right. So to be back in the the head of that girl and myself back then and all of the things that she so deeply did not know and all of the things that she really didn't know. Right. I, I think I'm 45 now and I am, I don't know, like I, I'm a lot more cynical than I used to be. And, and I, I see a lot more of the, the ugly in the world that, that she did. And I, and I'm, I'm reading a lot of um, abolitionist texts right now. And Mariam, Mariam Kaba has this line about um, how hope is a discipline. And so I've been thinking a lot about that, just like waking up every morning and, okay, how is hope going to be a part of my practice today in, in what the world can be? And when I sat in the, the text of my 20 something self and just how hopeful she was, God, like I, I want some of that back. I want that girl back in my world right now. And, and so uh, I think a hope that I have for both of those books is um, how it can like ask people to still have that, that hope in their world. I did feel a lot during the editorial process that like I wanted to come into the text and change things. Right. Like I wanted to yell, Megan, don't do that. Don't do that. It's not it's not not going to turn out well. Um, but I think to be honest to her, you leave the text as is. And so I'm, I'm I've read Girlhood. I love Girlhood so much. And it was fascinating for me to to look at that text where Melissa's older, wiser, more experienced self is able to think about what some of these experiences mean versus what I did publishing that work then and my older experience self doesn't live in the text, right? Um, but I, I, I didn't want to make that change to the earlier books. I wanted to, to put that into the new work, the, the stuff I'm doing now. So, so anyway, to your question, like during the pandemic, just to be locked in a room with a 12-year-old boy, I'm a single mom, uh, and, uh, and to sit and try to figure out how to re-edit that self uh, has just been a, a pretty wild mind. Um, that point, Megan, before I go to Kaveh, uh, mm-hmm. I just, so in our conversation five years ago, you talked a lot about the importance for you mm-hmm. of performing your stories before you commit them to the page. And I was thinking about that and the pandemic and wondering what that's been like. Have you found virtual spaces to perform your work kind of the work you do with Second Story and, and, and the other spaces that you've performed work in, are you still performing aloud or have you had to change your process a little, you know, because you can't, it, you're not on stage as much just yeah. by the nature uh, of lockdown? Oh yeah, all of all of the spaces that I'm a part of are, I mean, they're, they are nonprofit theater companies that, that live off of this work. Like it's not a, a separate reading series that gathers occasionally. Like these are, Um, like fully like board functioning organizations with a lot of support behind it. So I think like so many nonprofits, they all had to figure out like how to adapt during this time. Yeah. So there's um, really extensive, I guess, zoom work happening with all of these things. And I am still performing a lot online. And I, I, I think that that has upped my caffeine intake. Certainly. I think all of us on this call are like, how do we be engaging on Zoom for 17 hours a day. Now, um, 
but that's still been a part of this process. Now, now that said, and I, I would book, look back to Coven Melissa on this, because those two books had already lived in the world, I already have recordings of the vast majority of all of that work. Like I've performed the majority of those pieces live all over the city in different contexts. So, so there are different, um, there, there's, there's different documentation that I've been able to put in the world. I did do a show a couple of weeks ago outside with a, a chamber ensemble called Ape Blackbird. Uh, so their uh, percussionist and pianist scored several of the stories from Everyone Remain Calm and performed live with me. And so we had this huge audience outside that was also in the middle of Logan Square next to the highway. So there's all the street sounds and all of the traffic and all of that within the, the recording. So I think, I mean, the, the big part of the of the performance spaces, we can't protect it as much right now. Like the four of us are sitting here in a protected audio space, right? Melissa has a big microphone in front of her. Um, um, Marissa has big headphones on right now, right? So, cause we're, we're trying to protect our sound and make it as clean as possible for our listeners. But um, I, I don't think that's a thing that really exists anymore when, when we perform live. Um, but no, I, I am still able to, to be in the live spaces and that's been really important. So Kave, you have just put out Pilgrim Braille, your second collection. When we spoke in 2017, we were talking about your debut full length. Uh, so this is this is your second big book out in the world. I'm curious to know how the pandemic changed it, but also, you know, there's a difference between your debut and the, and the second one. Um, and then I'm also thinking, as Megan was just talking about, you know, I know you love to be out in the community doing readings connecting with your readers, that that's particularly a, a meaningful part of the process of what you do for you. And I'm wondering what that's been like. So if you, any of that that you want to speak to, please go ahead. Yeah. Um, thank you so much, first of all, um, for having us, for getting the band back together and yeah. for, uh, for facilitating that. Um, I'm, I've been, I can't improve upon what's already been said. I mean, there was so much that I was like, oh my God, that's the perfect way to articulate that thing that we that I've just sort of clumsily been lurching around. I think a lot about um, Eve Sedgwick who's this um, feminist critic who's really important to me. And she talks about how after Freud, paranoia has become more a um, prescription than a diagnosis, right? And, um, and I think that in our age, thinking about what Megan was talking about, about the sort of, loss of a certain kind of, I don't know, maybe maybe now I'm putting words into her mouth and I, I wanna be careful about doing that, but a loss of a certain kind of naivete um, um, or the loss of a certain kind of, of idealism is maybe a better way to say that. I certainly um, feel that the past five years have been pretty corrosive to any um, any sort of idealism uh, I might've held. Uh, about pretty much anything in the world, which is a really dark thing to say in a space like this. But, um, but maybe maybe a more useful way to frame this is to say that I have found that putting hope into the tank or putting 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 hope. I, I love Miriam Kaba, and I, I think a lot about her work and um, and the new book in particular, but I, I have found in just in my own personal experience that putting hope into the engine is a kind of, it's a kind of dirty and unreliable fuel for me, you know? Mm -hmm. 
um, it comes and goes. And we also live in an empire that conspires against hope um, pretty aggressively. But I have found that for me, there is a kind of rage that comes from a surfeit of tenderness, um, a, a surfeit of tenderness uh, that manifests in the ability to perceive with some amount of wholeness the interiority of the harmed. Um, I think that if you can imagine the interiority of the harmed fully or at least fully enough, the only real response is a kind of rage. And I feel like that sort of rage, again, the, not just like the sort of idiot invective that leaps into a room and starts calling people names, but um, the kind of rage that again, comes from um, an act of imagining, right? Um, an act of imagining the wholeness of non-you people. Um, I think that that's a pretty reliable fuel in our empire. And I think that the, <laughs> I've sort of retrofitted the engine or whatever of my creativity to run on that. You know, I think that the, the old engine, um, I, I'm straining this metaphor so hard, but... Um, <laughs> But, uh, you know, I think that I think that um, I found that what I was doing was not sustainable. Um, and this new orientation sort of keeps me honest and keeps me moving. Um, and I think it's the sort of the movement, the non-complacency that, I don't know, keeps me keeps me good or approaching goodness. I don't know that. that yeah. In 2017, Kava, you talked about the poem as a site of meaning making for you. Yeah. Do you still yeah. feel that way when you come to the page? Are the poems in Pilgrim Bell at, born out of an experience of meaning making for you? Yeah, absolutely. And, and in fact, I think that that ties in really closely to what I was just talking about. I mean, for me, the poems work similarly to how I imagine prayer working in my own practice, which is to say, I don't necessarily believe that there's an interventionist God who can, who I can um, pray toward, you know, to win the lottery and then he'll hand me a winning ticket. You know, um, I don't necessarily believe that that's the way that the divine works, nor do I believe that that's the way that poetry works. But um, I do believe that, um, if I pray for the unhoused, um, my job isn't done until I also go, you know, buy socks and cliff bars and disseminate them. You know what I'm saying? And I think that that's how, I think that that's how poetry works in my conception too. When I think about poetry as a site of meaning making, I think about it as a site of sort of writing my compass and pointing me towards the next right thing, as it were, you know, um, pointing me towards, um, the next gesture, you know, Teresa of Avila said, um, God has no hands, but ours. Uh, and I think that the same thing holds true for poetry, right? Um, uh, Gwendolyn Brooks, we, we, we've been talking about Chicago um, and Gwendolyn Brooks, a great Chicago poet and um, Annie Allen has a poem called First Fight Then Fiddle, um, which has always seemed like the most perfect and succinct forward mission statement for me you know and what I'm trying to do you know is to not just like is to like first fight and like first do the work you know and then sort of make my little songs about it right and to not and most importantly to not confuse one with the other you know. That makes me think about how 
imagination and and action are tangled together, right? Like we need both of them at the same time. My, um, I have a nine-year-old friend named Sophia. She has a brain tumor, and I write a, I've written a lot about her. I wrote about her a lot in in the wrong way to save your life. And and I remember when she was first diagnosed at two and a half. Um, her mother, my, my best friend, like people would say to her all the time, Oh God, I can't imagine what you're going through. I can't imagine what you're going through. And she would be like, "Uh, actually you can imagine it. You just don't want to. And just to think of like, I, I'm, I really picked up what you said Kava about, um, what it means to imagine the, the people who are harmed. Right. And like to even step into their bodies, to step in their experience. And that's, that's the first step to action. Right. So how does our work um, how does our work feed the imagination in that way? In in the hopes, and we'll come back to that, that com- complicated word, right? Um, but in the hopes that that is going to lead to the going to buy the cliff bars, going to the right, like the what are what are the the next steps? Like what happens in your head and heart, and then what happens with your hands and your body and your your wallet if you got stuff in your wallet? Like part of part of this hope is is if if you got some coin, there are people who need it. So how do we jump into that? Mm, I feel like that's something that I see as common between all of our work, certainly, but maybe even more transparently to me between our processes and relationship to our own work. Like when Kava was talking about rage and hope, I had the thought that they exist in sort of the same place for me. Like I don't like apathy or inaction or lack of empathy or like the opposite of hope isn't any other emotion, right? It's sort of lack of emotion or detachment, right? And for me, like to get angry, to get in touch with my rage, similarly grief, similarly, even a feeling of powerlessness, um, there's a kind of hope or at least a potential for hope inherent in that because in being angry, I'm already imagining a different outcome, right? I'm already imagining a different reality. I'm imagining that humans can be better, right? And I'm mad that that's not what the fuck we're doing, <laughs> you know? And I think, you know, I similarly have a, um, get frustrated sometimes and I'm very sort of wary of the appeal of sort of describing writing as activism because I think it can have power, but I don't think it's the same thing. It's not the same thing as buying cliff bars. Um, or even like sending money via PayPal or whatever. Um, but it is a passageway to the version of myself that can take those actions, right? Like it is the place where I feel I can safely access my rage, my grief, my tenderness, my, um, you know, um, the ways that I'm complicit, you know, and, and without that, I don't move into any other kind of action. Melissa, you spoke a lot in 2017, actually, about the page as a place, as the place, as the one place where you can do, where you come and meet yourself and talk with yourself about the things you aren't ready to say out loud to other people. Mm -hmm. And you reckon with the ideas that you're not quite ready to put out there. And then you put them out when you're ready in writing. And sometimes that's the first time you've said them. Uh, I'm curious, I know you're working on a craft collection called Bodywork. Uh, 
And I think I'm going to guess. I have not read this yet. I am looking at it. It's on my nightstand, but I have not had a chance to crack it open yet, uh, which is an indication of how busy I've been because I cannot wait to read this book. I also know, though, that I'm going to need hours with each section of it. So uh, and and then to revisit time and, you know, note making very short. So you're welcome. (laughs) Doesn't matter. But thank you. So I'm curious to know a lot of what we're talking about, about action and art. I'm going to guess in body work, you, you, you address some of this and some of how writing and our bodies are connected. And Megan and Kava, I'm going to circle back to you two also about writing and bodies. But Melissa, if you could talk a little bit about how the title of the craft book came to be body work. And maybe mm-hmm. what what your uh, mission is a word I don't love to use, but like what what how you approach writing a craft book, what that means for you. Okay. In some ways, those I are feel a like lot of good questions. <laughs> yes, I feel like we've all been waiting for the Melissa Phoebus craft book for a while, and so I, I'm just wondering when you sat down and thought I'm finally going to do this, what made mm-hmm. that happen? Right. Okay. Um, I'm going to go all the way back to the beginning of your question, which was about something I said in 2017 about um, the page being sort of the first place where I can articulate things that I can't to other people. And that has been true as far back as my memory goes, right? Like the, the privacy and company of a page, like writing something down is a solution for me to being alone with it. Um, And it's also a kind of waiting room where I don't yet have to be seen by other people. And so I can practice putting words to things. And um, I I am certain that that will be true um, for the rest of my life. Like that space is a holy space for me. And in many ways, that's what the craft book is about. Um, And partly, you know, I think I came to the craft book as a result of writing girlhood, um, which was the first time I had sort of entered that space of the page, encountered my younger self, encountered stories about my past that I was ready to sort of um, tear down and see what was underneath. Um, And that sort of private conversation where I found words for experiences that have felt unspeakable to me before, it was the first time that that conversation then sort of turned outward. And after I acknowledged certain harms of my past and the ways that they were um, foundational to, to the mechanisms of our society, that, that, you know, the functions of our society depended upon those harms um, in me and in other bodies like mine. Um, I had this voracious urge to talk to other people. Um, And this wasn't something I intended to be part of the writing process. It was just like part of my process. Um, And I started talking first, like to my wife and my friends and my mother, and then friends of theirs and their mothers. Um, And those conversations became a part of the book. Um, And it was, you know, the power of personal narrative has never been something that I doubted based on my own experience, but this was by far the most um, changing experience of it that I had had sort of drawing other stories into my story. Um, and the craft book came because, 
you know, honestly, I wish that in some ways it would be a better story if I was like, I'm finally going to sit down and do it and just sort of like open the trap door of my mind and spill it onto the page. You know, that's not what happened. I just got really, really tired of saying to my female and queer and BIPOC students, like your story matters, your story matters, your story matters, your story matters. And in fact, the voice that you hear in your mind saying that it doesn't matter is not your own. Um, it was implanted there by a system that benefits from your silence in every case, you know? Um, and so I've been repeating that for 15 years, right. Um, that the, you know, the binary between sort of the corporeal and the intellectual is a false binary. Um, it was designed by patriarchy with patriarchy in mind. Um, and, you know, I am surrounded by art that refutes it. And it's still really hard to see because those voices are so loud in me and in all of my students. And I was like, I'm just going to say it in a way that more people than like the 12 students in my classroom can hear. Um, and so I said it a bunch of ways, sort of about sex, about spirituality, about trauma recovery. It's sort of like, all of the stuff that I'm talking about in my classes and to myself, the conversation I'm having with myself all the time that I have to sort of move through to get into my own work. I just sort of externalized all of it. It is, it's kind of what, okay. So hello, listening audience. Like we, the four of us are here on zoom so we can see each other. And it is, it's, it's kind of now this like wild memory tunnel for me to, to be here with, with everyone. Cause if, if we, if we really look back to where we were on, 2017, um, when we were able to be together last time. Uh, it was the four of us and it was on stage and the way that room was lit and the way it was spotlit, I couldn't see anyone else in the space, right? So it just, it really felt to me, similarly to right now, that it was just the four of us talking. Um, and so there, there was kind of, to me, a, a different level of intimacy in this conversation than I often feel on, on panels. Like I, I just felt as though I, I was around a table with, with the folks here. and. Um, in 2017, at the beginning of October, the, Me Too had just exploded. That was the the like the time of Weinstein. The the fall immediately before that had been the 2016 election. The Access Hollywood tapes had hit. I know that all of us here are educators, and and for me, the fall of 2016 was just so many essays being put into my inbox from young women and non-binary folk about about sexual assault, and then that immediately followed. Um, with Weinstein that fall when we all gathered. And then that immediately followed fall of 2018 with Kavanaugh and just kind of this ongoing, um, just this ongoing di discussion of, of, of assault because that, that, that was the conversation, the wider conversation that we were having and needed to have and need to be still having culturally. Um, and I, I hadn't really addressed any of that in my own life. You know, I think every woman had a dungeon open up in her body around the time that, around that particular time. And the three of us gave brief readings in at that panel discussion. And Melissa, you read, um, you read a part. But I, I just remember the line: "The ways we find to fix ourselves don't always look like fixing. Sometimes they fail, but they are never wrong." And I had a little bit of a religious experience when you, like, I don't know if you can hear it on the podcast, but like something happened in my body in that moment. And I went home to Chicago and I joined an axe throwing club. And I started throwing axes every week for a year. And I didn't exactly know why I was doing it. I just knew that I was so 
furious. You know, and I've read enough of this country's literature and history to understand that rage is not a new reaction to the to, to what is happening in our world. Like back to, to the point that Kava was making earlier, right? But it was in my body in a different way the last time we all sat together. And so I spent a year making an essay about anger through the context just of throwing shit and weaponry and and just like being able to put violence outside of your body in some way. And when I stepped into that work, I didn't know what I wanted it to say. I didn't know what I wanted to talk about. I just knew that I, I wanted to try to maybe to understand myself, maybe to fix myself. Like this is connected to what Melissa was just saying about like the page being a place that's holy that you can come to, to try to even understand your own head and heart. Um, so that's the thing that I was trying to do. And so I made this essay, I turned it into the believer um, the following summer and they slated it for their winter print edition. And then that fall, it was Kavanaugh. And every single time I would log onto Twitter, it was just women's rage, just back to back to back to back. And I remember seeing one particular tweet that it just said, every woman you know uh, is walking around ready to open her mouth and a, 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 a flood of angry bees is going to come pouring out of her body. And I saw that and I, and I was like, God, I, I, want, I want to do something. And then I thought, oh, I kind of already did it. And so I wrote my editor at The Believer and I said, hey, I think we might need this essay sooner. And they ended up cutting it from the print edition, but putting it online the day after the Kavanaugh confirmation hearings. And so a, a thing that I want to talk about is, is it's one thing to, to put our heart on a piece of paper. And it is another thing, like, when does that piece of paper hit the, the, our greater cultural conversation? Like, where does urgency and immediacy come into play? And when does the work land with, when it's in the middle of a, of a bigger conversation, right? Like, just even looking at when girlhood landed fall after fall after fall of what girls had been carrying in their bodies for years. And then to go from just these years of trying to access what was happening in our bodies that we didn't understand, but then to sit and be able to take that in through Melissa's analysis of it was a really fascinating um, and deeply cathartic experience for me as a woman and a human and a reader, not even as a writer or an educator. Um, but I think for me, it was just the process of writing through that essay and also throwing stuff. Like I, I didn't come to understand my body through through child's pose or petting dogs or social media breaks or all of these things that people tell us that we should do in order to calm down. I'm, I'm uninterested in calming down anymore. I, I'm, I, I feel like that time is, is over for, for me at, at least. Um, so what does it mean to, to step up, but also what does it mean to take care of ourselves through that? And for me right now, that means throwing stuff and breaking stuff and mm -hmm. th throwing dishes and standing outside when the train goes by and just being able to scream because I just can't carry any of the stuff in my body anymore. Like I'm, I'm, I'm out. I, it needs to be put out. And some of that is through language, but some of that is through physical action. Mm -hmm. I just want to jump in to say that Megan's essay is called, I believe, An Axe for the Frozen Sea, and it is still available online and it is magnificent. And it's funny, Megan, as you were talking, I was thinking about how, you know, when I published Girlhood, people kept saying to me, like, I was so shocked that people were actually buying it and people kept saying like, oh, it's so timely. It's so timely. It's so timely. And there was a way that I felt frustrated by that because I was like, 
feminism isn't timely. Feminism is timely at every moment I've been alive. <laughs> like these are, you know, um, but as you were talking, um, I don't know. I was just thinking about how, when I started writing the essays that became that book, that voice of like, no one cares, no one cares, no one cares, no one cares was so loud in my mind, like writing 300 pages about adolescent girlhood, um, and like sexuality and abuse and, you know, no one cares. Um, and I kept writing cause I've heard that voice before and I know it's not mine. Um, but I do think like there was a depth that I was able to go after all of the bees came out, you know, like I remember walking around just being like anyone touch me, you know, and I will combust and take you with me. You know, I was so mad. Um, and though I had been sort of living and thinking and breathing and writing about feminist concerns for my whole life, like there was an extra push I needed to see that the granular experience that I had when I was 12 and that you had and that the other people I talked to had like mattered and not only mattered, but like needed to be made public. Um, and I think it was through sort of that essay of yours, all the writing that was coming out, the like posts on social media and like the fumes of rage that we were all sort of swimming throughout that time. So thank you. So just to jump in for two seconds, I think a lot of the times when people call work timely in our sort of marketplace, what they really mean is it's sort of disposable, you know, or they like, they're sort of like, they're sort of like, they don't realize that what they're saying is like, this is like a, like a, you know, like a peel and eat thing that I yeah. can then like move on to the next peel and eat thing. And I think that what you created and what you're both creating and talking about are, um, are things that have obviously lived inside of us as a species, but more specifically lived inside of you guys um, forever, you know what I mean? And will continue to until, you know, long after our lifetimes, right? And um, yeah, I, I, I hear that. I hear that word thrown around a lot. Um, and it's like one of those sort of things that people say when they don't really know how to talk about something or when they don't really know how to... Um, grapple with the way that something is making them feel they call it mm -hmm. timely i want to think a little bit about uh you're all you all teach and you've been teaching through the pandemic and i am curious to know uh how being a teacher of writing in a pandemic has played out for you and whether that is something you think is affecting your writing process, might affect projects you're working on now. I know, Melissa, we've talked about what you're working on now, but Kava and Megan, I don't actually know what you are. Uh, Kava, I know you have that uh, anthology coming out, actually. Uh, we can talk about that too. But, um, but you know, how, how has, you're in classrooms maybe now in person, and last year you were on in online classrooms with young people through a very bizarre time for humanity. And I'm just wondering, I guess, what that might've taught, what insight you've drawn from that about writing, teaching, and being human. And Megan, maybe do you wanna kick that off? I really always love hearing you talk about teaching. I can come at this from so many different ways, but I, I think let's 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 start here. I, I think the, the past year and a half, it it 
utterly saved my life in ways that I am still trying to figure out how to understand, let alone articulate. Um, I uh, became a single mom shortly before the pandemic happened. And uh, my son and I lived in four states over the past year and a half. We lived out of the car, we chased work. Um, we lived with friends. We lived for a while in Vegas. I was there on a fellowship. Uh, we were in California for six months. We were in rural Michigan for six months. Uh, the constant in my life that whole time were these very weird and wonderful Zoom spaces where I sat with people who were trying to find language for their own experiences. I teach memoir. So everything that they're writing about is survival in some way or the other. So every single week to have work show up in my inbox from women and non-binary folk about how they survived right? Like that, that is the thing that kept me going through hands down the most difficult time in my life. And, you know, my, my son and I just got back to Chicago this summer. I I'm standing here in this apartment that we just moved into last month. It's the first home I've had in a year and a half. I can't like, I, I just unpacked my books. Those are the only things I kept. They've been in storage, um, but everything else, like this standing desk, I just ordered it. Um, that couch, Somebody gave it to, right? Like, you know, it's like, how do you rebuild a life? Like I can sit here and talk about stuff for a million hours, but what I'm talking about right now are the writers in these spaces with, with me. And so that was the thing, that was the North Star, right? And I think also when you're going through, um, when you're going through a, huge changes in, in your world and, you know, but back to the description of our 2017 panel and, and just the idea of wounds and wonder, that that completely encapsulates the, the past couple of years that I've been in a, a little bit of a whirlpool. Um, when you're when you're trying to to even figure out what all of that means, um, to be able to see that human beings are still showing up for one another every week, right? I teach. I have one foot in academic spaces. I'm at Northwestern, and I also have one foot in community art spaces. I teach for um, Catapult and. Uh, Story Studio Chicago. And so all of these different writers are coming to these spaces for entirely different reasons. Um, we're across age group, like the oldest student I'm working with right now is 80 and the youngest is 16. I teach arts criticism to high school girls at the Goodman. Kava, when you said earlier that, that um, you said when, when people don't know how to talk about art, and I, I would just like, like to lift up these young women that I'm working with from around Chicagoland who are showing up every week because they want to figure that out. They want to figure it out at this particular age. How do we come, like, how do we show up to the table to talk about art that's being made in ways that are more um, expansive and, and, um, and deeply thoughtful. Like there was one point on a, on a Twitter thread that I saw from Victor Laval, someone came in and said, criticism, um, when done right is an act of love. And God, I love that line, right? It's something that I offer to these women, these young women I work with all the time. But anyway, just, I'm, I'm in all of these different spaces. Everyone is there for entirely different reasons, but they believe that language matters and, and being able to find meaning of something through language matters. And so I think in a time when I was, questioning all sorts of different things of my life to be able to say, Hey, here is one thing that this is one place where I know I'm supposed to be. I'm supposed to be here with my son. I am here to be this human being's mom. And I am here to be in this space with writers, helping them find words. Those two things 
were things that I knew about myself that were true this past year and a half when I didn't, when I didn't know, um, when I didn't know a lot about, uh, about a lot in, in my life. And uh, so to writers I worked with who are listening to this, God, thank you. Thank you. Kava, I have heard you speak similarly about the experience of working with your students through the pandemic, particularly early in the pandemic. I remember we were doing an event together and you mentioned your students were, were sort of saving your life. Uh, so maybe you could also share a little bit about what it's been like to teach poetry to young minds during a pandemic. Yeah, yeah. Um, just being able to hang out in their minds instead of my own has been such a mercy, you know, like endlessly, you know, I have so much of the pandemic. I've been just in the house, you know, the same house with the same books and the same thoughts, just sort of endlessly reprocessing them over and over and kind of wearing lesions into my brain. Um, and every moment that I get to spend in non-me minds has been a mercy, but um yeah, I, I I love some. I'm I'm still sort of shook by what Megan was just talking about, um, and trying to compose myself a little bit. But your the the way that you framed the question initially was like, how has it been like just teaching humans, you know? And and I've been thinking a lot about just like the the uncanniness of you know Zoom teaching, which you know we've all sort of we have these sort of like autonomic conversations about almost you know like you just like sort of run into someone and you're like yeah Zoom yeah and you know and like you know and it's sort of um, but it really is this thing where I remember I, I'm someone who when I'm talking on the phone I pace a lot and like sometimes I just have to go on a walk because I just can't like I've never just sat in a chair for a phone call that lasted longer than like two minutes you know I have to like amble around and I remember reading about this phenomenon, which is apparently like fairly widespread among our species. And, um, and people, you know, like people who study this sort of thing have hypothesized that it's because um, our evolutionary brain doesn't understand that we are talking to another human being and can't see them. So like our unconscious is like trying to like wander and find the person to whom we're speaking, you know, and like, we're like, just trying to like amble about and find, you know, the, the addressee, you know, and, and so, you know, we, we pace and we pace and we pace trying to find this voice. And I, I think about, I, th I find that so moving and sad. And also if that's what talking on a phone does to our unconscious, like what does, what do these Zoom conversations do to our unconscious? You know what I mean? Like, like what is the sort of like Zoom equivalent of my ambling? You know, like, like what does like seeing you, but without any sort of like depth or corporeality, you know, um, or without any sort of texture or smell or, you know what I mean? Like, like what does, what does that do to the mind? And like, what does that do to like my lizard brain? You know, that's something that I've thought a lot about and all this time spent with my students, you know, some of whom, you know, my grad students come to Indiana to work with, you know, me and, um, and my colleagues and some of them I didn't even like see in person, you know, some of them I picked up from the airport, but some of them I didn't even see in person until um, I had already been working with them for six months, six months or more, you know, and, and that's such a trip, you know, um, and what that does to our mind. And I also think about, and I apologize, because I know that this isn't exactly what you asked, but um, but another, you know, I just stuck on this body thing, you know, which was introduced earlier and um, um, and other 
people have spoken so cogently about and movingly. Um, but I, I, these are the questions that I have just been like obsessing over is like, I used to be like a kind of obnoxious vegan, like one of the vegans who ruins it for everyone else, you know, um, uh, just like really loud and bumper stickers and stuff. Um, and, uh, and during that time I was, wa I was watching a lot of videos as, uh, such a person does. Um, and I remember learning about, um, <laughs> learning a lot about abattoirs and how, um, when you, when you butcher a cow for meat, um, I promise I'm making a point here, but when you butcher a cow for meat, um, you can't let the cow behind him see, you know, because like if the cow sees another cow being butchered, it like releases a hormone that spoils the meat or makes the meat harder. You know, there's, there's something in there that just like spoils the meat, right? Like it, um, that, that sort of fright, that terror hormone, you know, ruins the meat, you know? And I think about, you know, us being, you know, rel you know, relatively genetically similar, right? You know, to, you know, we haven't, we're both like just land mammals. We haven't, evolve that, you know, in terms of like our evolutionary history, we're not that far evolved past, um, or past is the wrong word, but um, we're not that far evolved differently. But, um, but thinking about, you know, the idea of us just sort of like scrolling on our phones all day, and we see like these literally unimaginable, like the, the mind, the, the, my mind, is too weak to be able to apprehend the difference between like 200,000 deaths and 200,001 deaths, you know, unless like art shows me that the difference like in granularity, right? But like, like as a quantitative term, you know, my mind literally can't conceive of it, but just like scrolling on my phone, like with all of these instances of death, you know, a statistic about the global death event that we're all surviving right now. And then a Charmin ad and then like baseball scores and then like an autoplay snuff film of um, state murder of an unarmed civilian, right? And then like, and then like an ad for Folgers, you know, and then, you know, some take about the new Avengers movie, right? Like that all, like what that is doing to our meat, you know what I mean? Like, like what that is doing to my meat and what that is doing to, to my students is me too, for whom, who don't have like as much of a, another frame of reference for a life spent in this thing, you know, um, who don't have as much of a referent for the before, right? Um, I don't know. I think that, I think that scientists and people who study this sort of thing, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm a poet. I don't actually know what I'm talking about, but I think that the people like the smart people um, who are tasked with this sort of thing will be studying this for a long, long time, you know, and I think that we'll be finding um, the effects of carrying this, um, in our meat, in our bodies. I think we'll be finding that for a long, long time. Can I, can I, I, I want to build on, on this a little bit, cause I'm thinking about, okay. So, um, at, at Northwestern, a couple of the writers that I work with there, uh, are science majors and they're studying client climate science, right? But the reason why they're coming to creative writing classes is to figure out how to talk to a wider audience about it, right? So, so I'm, I'm thinking about um, the poetry, the fiction, the essays that are being made about climate science, about our political polarization, about the uh, civic and racial uprising centuries in the making, about what happens to people's bodies in the lockdown, right? Like, I, just even hearing you, Kava, I don't know if you were just watching me and Melissa and Marissa's faces, but we were all like, what? 
like I, I, I literally, I, I, I think I can move a mountain now with my brain after just listening to you for two minutes, break that down. So I, I'm, man, I'm coming at the poets to help me understand this. I'm coming at the essayists. I'm coming at the short story writers, right? Um, like, so, so how do we either work with the data scientist? Like, like wh where is this collision? Cause I, and, and I think for all of us being in academia as well too, like we can look at where, at where academia needs to like do some real quick, like one eighties and spin around and, and start learning a thing or two about language that isn't so deeply disciplined, specific and exclusionary because all sorts of information that we need as a country and as a people and as a culture, like we're, we're missing out because we're, like, we're not, we're not figuring out how to talk to one another of, about this. Right. So, and by this, I mean, like insert any of the right now, radio listeners, Megan is gesturing widely at the world, right? Like any of this, like all the things that are happening, like we all need to be a part of this conversation. So, so again, when I think of um, action, right? Like we've been thinking about that word in, in, in a lot of different contexts right now, but like, I, how, how is that connected to our work in the world? Uh, is to, God, there are a lot of things that we need to be talking about. So, so mm -hmm. where does that come into play? I think both in our writing and in our work as educators. Mm. It's so true. I was, as you were talking, Megan, and like, thank you so much for that, Kava. I, uh, I wonder if part of what you were reading was Temple Grandin, who I've, have you all read her work uh, on abattoirs um, and humane uh, um, butchery practices? Uh, anyway, um, I was thinking about how I reach this point in almost everything that I'm writing where I'm it's the researching part, right? Where I'm reading the theorists and I'm reading, um, you know, about the, the meat and, and I think, oh shit, I can't finish this essay. Cause I have to go get a PhD in gender studies. Like that sucks, you know? <laughs> and I often, there's like a routine, right? I go to my wife and I'm like, sweetie. So, uh, I think I'm going to have to take a leave of absence and go apply to J school because I don't know how to have conversations with people so that it can be in my work. I don't know how to do that because I don't write theory. And she was like, why don't you go call a friend first <laughs> before you like download the application? And I call a friend, usually the same friend, but it could clearly be anyone on this call right now. Um, and she's like, no, 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 no. Remember this happened last time. And what we figured out is that the theorists are doing the theory, the climate scientists are doing the climate science. And what happens is you filter it through your eccentric, puny, amazing little brain where it hybridizes with your own experience and your capacity and instinct for metaphor and analogy. And then you spew out something that is legible and inspiring to people who are never going to read climate science, who are not reading Sedgwick who are, you know, I'm mean, I'm like, Oh, right, 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 right. Okay. Okay. I'm going to go back to like tapping on my little keyboard and eating my snacks and sighing at my computer, you know, and just like listening to you, Kava, I was like, yeah. So the most um, persuasive argument against Twitter that I have ever heard <laughs> on this zoom call perfection. Um, yeah. And I think like, I don't know, that is to the teaching question, like what what it does, right? Like I come into these little rooms and hear people trying to figure out how to talk about things that are too big for our imaginations, right? Like we can't think, 
in in those metrics, but we can think about like a metaphor for our hands or whatever. And somehow that communicates it more, more directly. Right. Um, it feels to me like teaching has always been like a place for me. Like my, I've always thought of my classrooms as a place that was too tender. I sort of needed to hide it from my colleagues, like how much we were talking about feelings in my classes. <laughs> and I feel like the past year just like blew the walls off of that, where I was like, no, there is no attendance policy. Now I can tell everyone I have no attendance policy. Everyone gets A's <laughs> like sometimes classes of vigil. Sometimes it's group therapy. Um, sometimes we're just like giving individual testimonies. It's like a 12 step meeting. Um, like all of those things have been closer to sort of how I would describe my classrooms. Um, but this year things just got, um, that space just had to be whatever we needed it to be. You know, it was like the one space where I was showing up every week with other writers. Um, and we were trying to hold the space for art and whatever that meant, you know? Um, and in some ways I think it necessitated that we think of new ways to talk about art right? Like even different from the ways that I had been teaching it a year or two years before. And it's funny, Kava, you brought up the Sedgwick paranoid reading at the beginning of this conversation. And I started in last spring semester assigning that at the beginning of all of my classes, because I was like, we can't like they're, they have less experience than me. That's the only difference between me and my students. And they were slightly less practiced at making that turn away from like total devastation and nihilism. <laughs> and I was like, we have to find a way to read each other's work and to read these other texts and to move the rage toward hope. Like we just have to. And so like we started talking about reparative reading and we stopped giving critiques of each other's work. I was like, we're only talking about what works and we are talking about how this text can become a tool for our survival and others. And like, that's it. And that was plenty for the whole semester. Yeah, I've literally taught it in every class that I've <laughs> taught over the past, I think maybe since the since 45 was elected, because it's just like yeah. the, the default is the turn so paranoid and like the idea of no bad surprises, you know, and mm -hmm. and uh, as we've been mm -hmm. burned again and again and again yeah. and again, like the the so many of my students um that is all they have known, you know, and, and yeah. like she says, you know, um, paranoid reading is really good at some things, the way that like new criticism was really good at some things and it's really bad at other things, you know, it's useful for some things and it's really not. Yeah. yeah. It pairs really well. I will say with Sontag's against interpretation where I was just like, we're going to sit here, we're going to look for strategies for hope and believing in something. And we're not going to like interpret things today. We're just going to be like art. What is it doing? inside of us right now. That's it. Which is especially useful in an, I mean, I used to teach middle school and, uh, and high school and, um, you know, just how corrosive it was to have to teach to certain sort of state tests upon which our funding was mm -hmm. contingent. Right. And how mm -hmm. the state tests were all like in this poem, the moth represents a, the mother B the, exile see the despair of the poet you know and like and how antithetical that is to the spirit of like what a poem is or does or wants to be or how it wants to be perceived you know and mm -hmm. um yeah and yeah the idea of just 
sort of disabusing people or like undoing the damage of such an education um, is so much the work of my creative writing and just being like, mm-hmm. um, you know, how did it make you feel? Or like, or like the way that like, if a bird lands outside the window and you're just like, that's a beautiful bird. And then it flies away and it doesn't mean anything. It's just an encounter with something beautiful. That's not of you. And like persuading people that it's okay to feel that way about art and that it doesn't have to be sort of strapped to a gurney and autopsy, you know? Yeah. The the longer I teach, the less my teaching is me talking and the more it's me being like, let's go stand outside and stare at each other and listen <laughs> to the leaves for one full minute. Thousand percent. Okay. So we're going to wrap up our conversation soon. We ended our 2017 talk with a question. I asked the audience to share a, a lightning question that we could answer quickly. I think we had about a minute left. So we don't have a hard stop time like we did in that auditorium. Uh, But I'd like to end with that same lightning question, which is what is a book you've loved reading this year? Uh, So something that's come out recently, or is about to come out uh, that you want to shout out to everyone listening today. Uh, And let's uh, go ahead and start with who's looking eager to start. Uh, Megan. Uh, Night Bitch by Rachel Yoder. So good. Very, very wonderful and angry in all the best ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll go. Um, White Magic by Alyssa Washuda. Oh, yes. Very much. Yes. Kave. Uh, I know it's hard yeah. to pick one. <laughs> no, I know. I know. I, I always I always in these moments, I'm always like, oh, dang, I wish I had read literally anything. It's like every thing <laughs> that I've ever read. The history of my person has just sort of, you know, fled my brain. But no, I actually was just reading this. Um, it's just, and this is just the first book that leaps to mind that I really, really loved recently. But there's this book by um, this uh, non-speaking autistic poet. There's this there's this press in Minneapolis that does um, these little chapbooks of autistic and neurodivergent poets, but um, Milkweed has partnered with that press to release some full-length books. And the first full-length book in this series um, is called The Kissing of Kissing by Hannah Emerson, which I don't think is actually out yet. So maybe this isn't the best plug, but it's pre-orderable. It's called The Kissing of Kissing by Hannah Emerson. And it's like, the whole book is almost like this sort of extended, version of Molly Bloom's soliloquy. I mean, not like, it's not literally that, but like, it just feels like that to me, you know, it's sort of this like rapturous ecstatic thing. And um, yeah, I mean, there's like Whitman and Stein and sorry, you didn't actually ask us to sort of rhapsodize about the things, but I I just, I was so moved by it. Um, And, uh, and it's just, it's, you know, I read a lot of, I read a lot of books and um, uh, poetry books specifically, but this one, uh, just from the first, like halfway through the first poem, I was like, oh my God, this is a totally new thing, you know, and I'm, and I'm so excited about it. The book is called The Kissing of Kissing and it's by the poet Hannah Emerson and it's coming out with Milkweed. And I will share that, yes, pre-orders definitely matter. So even though it's not out yet, go ahead and pre-order it. Mm -hmm. So I am so grateful to the three of you for being here again with me for this conversation. Thank Uh, you so much, Marissa. Thank you. This has been a special 2021 Portland Book Festival episode of Literary Arts, The Archive Project a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers for more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. 
Our Portland Book Festival special episodes include conversations with editor and poet John Freeman and three writers, Jakuta Alikovazovich, Lana Bostasich, and Alexander Heyman, with Roots in the Balkans on change through the specific lens of language and translation. Our archive project producer, Crystal Ligori, talks to novelists Rivka Galchin and A.K. Blakemore about their new witch books. Four panelists from the 2017 festival, Kava Akbar, Melissa Phoebos, Megan Steelstra, and Marissa Siegel, reunite to continue their conversation about wounds and wonders and writing. Grace Bonney, creator of Design Sponge, leads a discussion on aging with three of the featured women from her new book, Collective Wisdom. Lisa Congdon, Nyakman Nyo, Sunoko Sakai. Tune in at The Archive Project and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Our show is produced by Crystal Ligori for Radio and Podcast with production oversight by Amanda Bullock and support from Liz Olofsson. Special thanks to Literary Arts Marketing staff, Jyoti Roy and Hope Levy, and the entire Literary Arts staff, board, and community. This show would not be possible without them. Thanks also to the band Emancipator for our theme music, and thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Amanda Bullock, and this has been another special Portland Book Festival podcast episode of the Archive Project from Literary Arts. Join us next time and find your story here.